I'm particularly happy to see quite a number of my old students and friends here and also quite a number of new ones. And um, after this course is over, of course, we're all old friends. There's a very important aspect of the Buddha's teaching to have the right kind of friends. And uh, it will be mentioned probably several times. It's an interesting aspect also of one's spiritual life because if one doesn't have the right kind of friends, those that are interested in the same things that oneself is interested in, one can easily become sidetracked. And particularly in a society such as California, I can't say anything about the rest of the country. I didn't see it. But um, it's so um, fast, and it has so many attractions, which, of course, turn into distractions. And uh, if one doesn't have the right kind of um, friends that are supportive of oneself in a spiritual endeavor, it is too easy to fall into the same ways that everybody else is doing. There's a very interesting discourse by the Buddha. My tradition, the Theravadan tradition, bases itself totally and completely upon the discourses that the Buddha gave during his 45 years of teaching either to monks or to lay people. Approximately 17,500 discourses. Enough instructions for all of us for the rest of this life and many lives to come. We don't have to know all 17,500 discourses. Although there are supposed to be some people around who do. I'm not one of them. But if we have some knowledge of what the Buddha taught, we have guidelines. And those guidelines will help us to keep ourselves in line. And that's what they're for. They are nothing but suggestions and explanations and possibilities. When we see that they help us, we will obviously try to follow them more and more. This particular sutta, sutta is a Pali word for discourse, that I have in mind is called the Ratavinita Sutta. The Buddha spoke a language <coughs> which we now call Pali, and it only exists in the Buddha's teaching. It never has been a spoken language nor a written language other than spoken by the Buddha in his lifetime, never written down, there's no alphabet for it, was written down in the Sinhalese alphabet in that language. Now the words that I sometimes use which sound foreign will be Pali and I will probably catch myself quickly enough to translate them into English. If I don't you're very welcome to ask me. After years and years of studying this, 
these Pali words become part of one's um, ideas and parts of one's mental system, and sometimes I may miss one. Now, this Rata Vinita Sutta is translated as the relay of coaches. And as I go along, you will find out why it has that name, why it's called a relay of coaches. I will not start out by telling you about it. I will start out with the beginning of that particular discourse. The story says that the Buddha sat together with his monks one time and asked them whether they knew anyone amongst the monks who was able to be of a particular advancement and was also teaching like that. And he mentioned ten points which he was looking for in a monk that he should have attained and would be teaching. Now, these ten points are all important to each one of us, particularly during a retreat such as this. The first one, the first point is, did they know any, any of the monks who had few wishes and taught like that? Now, why would that be important? Why is it important to have few wishes? With the wealth of material that is available in our society, as I have admired it for the past two weeks, it is almost impossible to have few wishes, isn't it? In fact, it would seem to me that one doesn't even know anymore that one has wishes. It is the accepted procedure. Now, it's very simple to explain why this is detrimental to one's own happiness. And yet, the whole society turns itself on the wheel of wishes. Everything we can see, taste, smell, touch, and hear, all of has been given to us because we are looking for it. Now, sometimes, of course, we also have the misfortune, we think, to see, hear, taste, touch, or smell something we don't like. But we quickly disappear from that, we run away from it, do something about it, so that we can again have that what we like. The Buddha... And at his enlightenment, formulated what are known as the Four Noble Truths. They are, so to say, the hub of the wheel of the Dhamma. The Dhamma, the teaching of the Buddha. These Four Noble Truths were his enlightenment experience. He was able to formulate them so that we today, two and a half thousand years later,
can still partake of it if we so wish. And the first of the Four Noble Truths is that there is Dukkha. Now that's a word we're going to use in Pali. D-U-K-K-H-A. Because in English and in all other languages, it needs a long translation. We can't find a word for it that just has those six letters. It means pain, grief, and lamentation, sorrow. It means birth, decay, illness, and death. But it actually means everything. Because nothing can ever be totally satisfying that we can find in the world because everything constantly changes. So if we have a look at it in ourselves, we could say at this point that it is all that is not satisfying to us. Everything that's not satisfying we can call dukkha. But it is not just the things we don't like. It's that little inner yearning which says there must be more to life. What is it? Maybe I can find it in a therapy, in a group, in a person, in a book, in a meditation course. Maybe I can find it in a study, where is it? It's not quite enough what I'm having. And basically, we could say we've got everything. Everything that one can dream of. And yet, there's this little inner voice which says, that can't be all. There must be something else. The Buddha also formulated the second noble truth, which said, says, there's only one reason, one cause for dukkha, one single cause, makes it really simple. We get rid of that one cause, and we've made it. And that's craving, wanting or not wanting. Now, doesn't that sound simple? It is but it's not easy because it's exactly what the Buddha said that he's looking for in a monk someone who has few wishes and teaches that not to get more but to get rid of to let go the words to let go can be construed to be the epitome of a spiritual path if there is any feeling within oneself that materiality is not enough, spirituality has to be a part of one's life, it's got to be called letting go. Spirituality and letting go are synonymous, often forgotten. So we have the first and second noble truths. First one says there is dukkha, there is unsatisfactoriness. The world as we know it 
can never totally satisfy. There's always that remaining feeling, I want to be completely fulfilled. I'm not completely fulfilled. Very often, we have ideas of what would fulfill us, and we like to add that to our lives. The Buddha said, that's not the way to do it. It's a letting go of our wishes. Now, the wishes include also trying to avoid or remove that which we don't like. That's a wish to get rid of. What it all amounts to is a letting go of our own personal viewpoints. Now, wishes can be material wishes, naturally, but they can be something entirely different, too. They can be emotional wishes, and that's probably what we have the most problems with. In order to get material satisfaction, not so difficult, is it? advertisements seem to offer everything under the sun. But the emotional wishes, that's not so easy. And that wishing brings difficulties again and again. We do not think that these are unreasonable wishes. And there's no question whether they're reasonable or unreasonable. But what we could do is find out whether the Buddha is correct. And that would be to a great, would be great advantage to ourselves. Namely, if there's any wish that we have which hasn't been fulfilled and which is bothering us in some manner or form, maybe even right now in the back of our mind, sort of like a little feeling in the back of the mind. Just as soon as I have a bit of time, I'll think about it again. Or um, after the course, I'm going to take care of that. Or whatever it may be, we could try out dropping it for a moment, letting go of it completely, having no f- nothing further to do with it, just for this one moment. Not for any other reason except for trying out whether it's true. That if we let go of the wish, the dukkha disappears. And you can try that out any number of times during this course. Whenever something is bothersome, unsatisfactory, you don't like it, look at the wish, what it is that you're wishing and drop that wish and see how the discontent disappears. Now, obviously, we are not at the point where we can drop this wish, whatever it may be, permanently. But having dropped it once for a moment, we at least know now what it's like, and we know how to handle it. And we know what the solution is. 
to any, anything that's bothersome, unpleasant, painful, worrisome, whatever it may be. We know the solution. Drop the wish that it should be different. Seeing things as they are doesn't mean that from now on we become self-satisfied. But it means that there's a certain contentment. And that's the second point that the Buddha was looking for in a monk. Someone who is contented and also teaches that. Now, why are both of these things so important? We would probably like to get that way through meditation. But unfortunately, we're dealing with Catch-22. We can't meditate until and unless we drop all wishes and feel contented. So we've got to do both. We've got to start out on the right premise and, of course, as we go along, become more and more deeply imbued with it. Someone who is contented has obviously been able to drop many wishes. It is a very helpful thing to have a look at oneself, and these are contemplative endeavors which have to support our meditative practice. To contemplate within oneself, what is it that I'm wishing? What is it that I want? What am I spending most of my energy and time on? Or my mental formations, my mind. Where's my mind going? What do I want? And then checking it out whether those wants are actually helpful for spiritual emancipation or whether they are, and unfortunately most of them are that way, a support system for our ego illusion. Are they supposed to be supportive of me? Or will they help me in my spiritual endeavors my spiritual path. Naturally, none of us will be totally without wishes. But we often say that we practice wishing to get rid of all wishes. So if that is our wish, at least we have a pathway. But it is helpful to have a look, to contemplate and see, am I full of wishes or am I fairly contented? Contented with who I am, where I am, right here, what I'm doing with my life, how I'm conducting myself. Am I contented with what I have? Or do I feel a great deal of discontent within? Do I have a great deal of anxiety about myself? All these 
questions, when they bring an answer, can be questioned again. That answer can be questioned again. As we get to know ourselves a little better, it's easier to drop that which is worthless. We all carry around with us a great deal of worthless baggage. It's heavy and it prevents us from meditating successfully because we keep thinking. Now, we may not be thinking about our wishes at that time, but we are thinking, and that is the greatest drawback to meditation. So we can look at our wishes and our contentment, if we have it, or our discontent, if we have that, and see what it consists of. Get to know ourselves a little better. A meditation course is an inward journey. And there are just as many traffic jams and difficulties as on any freeway. But we can find them ourselves. And as we find them within, we may be able to disentangle them within the concept of what the Buddha taught. If we have those guidelines, we may be able to use them. The third quality that the Buddha was looking for in a monk was living secluded. Now that for most people in society, would not be possible. But we have this here. We have this opportunity here during the course. We have seclusion. We have taken time out from our ordinary, everyday duties and responsibilities to have this personal seclusion where we can get to know ourselves better and will be able to have that opportunity get our mind into a state of rest and quiet where we may be able to touch a different consciousness. That's what meditation is actually all about, raising our level of consciousness from the ordinary, everyday, marketplace kind of consciousness to one which has an understanding of universality. It takes concentration. The concentrated mind needs all the support it can get and that's why this seclusion is of such importance. This seclusion <coughs> will have naturally as part of it noble silence. 
because that inner journey is really only possible if we concentrate our energies one-pointedly. As long as we talk to others, we have that communication and relationship syndrome with which we all live and probably are so used to it that we don't even know anymore how much energy it consumes and how often it also is detrimental to any spiritual pathway because we have to be considerate. Here, our consideration for others will be that we don't talk to them. We'll leave them alone. And if anybody thinks that another person is unfriendly because they're not smiling at me, they're not looking at me, well, unfortunately, that's going to be their problem. Everyone is here for their own benefit. That's all we're interested in at this time. We can only give to others what we have already attained within ourselves. If I have great compassion for a poor person and would like to give that poor person some money, but I haven't made any money, how am I going to do it? I can't give what I haven't got. So we first have to be completely selfish and spend these days for the benefit of our own growth and our own understanding. And then, as we leave this place and go back to our relationships, our communication, our duties, then we can bring with us what we have gained here. The silence is a very important aspect. Now, if you have any meditation problems and it's not your time for the interview, you will always find me willing and having time to discuss it with you. You just need to tell me that you want to see me. If there's any physical difficulty, such as needing something or other, you either tell Isha, and if Isha isn't here, tell Barbara. And since we have four Barbaras, I think you have to raise your hand, Barbara. anything that is physical. But please, don't just for the sake of having a conversation. And also not in the kitchen. A kitchen is a very um, popular meeting place for anyone who doesn't feel that they want to be quiet. If you find it extremely difficult, to be silent and haven't done this sort of thing before, please come and see me and we'll discuss it. <coughs> okay? But don't discuss it with your roommate because it's just possible that your roommate does want to be quiet. It is the... It is like a fasting of the mind. And this fasting of the mind is necessary in order to come to the point 
where the mind doesn't want to have input, but really wants to be quiet. Now, if you've ever fasted physically, you know that in the beginning it's rather unpleasant and it's a little difficult and uh, you're thinking about food maybe, and it's exactly the same with the mind. But afterwards, one feels very buoyant about having been able to do it and having given the body a great benefit. Here it's exactly the same, only far more important. Because the mind is a master and the body is a servant. The body can't do anything that the mind has not programmed. A program is being made in the mind. And that's where we have to really concentrate our endeavors. So the seclusion that the Buddha is speaking about, being secluded, also has another meaning. It means, in the first place, of course, not to be involved with too many things in society. Many people, and uh, unfortunately far too many people, have so many appointments and commitments and things to do and to look after that it's very difficult for them to even take time out to consider what's important because they're so busy. Naturally, this is also meant with seclusion, not to be too busy. But it also has another meaning. And this other meaning, seclusion, comes to its main point when the meditation has come to the point where there is concentration. The moment when there is concentration in the mind, seclusion from sensual desire is a result, but it's also a cause. For instance, if we sit and we get unpleasant feelings in the legs, as most people unfortunately do, and then our mind is concerned with nothing else except that, the unpleasant feelings in the legs, and the mind wants to get away from it, change something, have some sort of pleasant feelings. Well, that's essential desire, to have comfort. And it keeps the mind occupied because there never will be complete comfort with this body. Even at night, on the most expensive mattress, the body cannot stay in one position. You all know that we wake up in a different position than the one we have put ourselves to bed with. Why? 
because the body has discomfort and signals that even to the mind that is asleep and we move about. Some people move about so much that they lose all their bedclothes. This body just isn't comfortable. And the older it gets, the more uncomfortable it gets. But that's not all there is to it. What we have to look at is not only that if there is discomfort that we get a wish, but also that we have a sensual desire. So we are actually want to have the desire, which is the wish, and we also want the comfort, which is what we think is due to us. This society supports physical comfort with everything it's got. It underwrites it completely. doesn't mean to say that the Buddha talked about physical discomfort as desirable. The Buddha taught the middle path. And the middle path means neither asceticism nor luxury. It means taking things as they are. So when we have an uncomfortable sitting, an uncomfortable feeling from our sitting position, we need to use that in order to learn from it. We can learn from it very clearly, namely, that the first thing that has happened is that there is touch contact, which touch one of our five senses. The touch contact of the knee on the pillow or the feet on top of each other, wherever we happen to have the touch. Or maybe if the back is hurting, the vertebrae are touching, whatever it may be. From every sense contact comes a feeling. And from the feeling comes what is called the perception, the naming of it. So the feeling in this case maybe was unpleasant. So we're giving it a name and we're calling it pain. But that's just a name. In reality, we only have pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings. Neutral feelings we don't know about. We are not mindful enough to recognize them. And also we don't mind them because at least they're not unpleasant. So we're really only interested in two kinds. Pleasant, which we want to keep, and unpleasant, we want to get rid of. And as you will be here for the 10 days, you will probably all notice that our whole life revolves around those two. And if we don't put a stop to it, it's going to become awfully boring. We want the pleasant feelings and we want to get rid of the unpleasant. So here we have an unpleasant feeling and since we know what this is called, we call it pain. That's a perception. And now comes what is called the mental formation, the one that we make our karma with. And this mental formation says something like, I don't like this at all. I've got to move. I'm sure it's very unhealthy. 
my blood circulation is being stopped. This can't be good for me. I knew I should have brought a chair. And then the whole thing goes on and on and the meditation is forgotten. And then, of course, one finally recognizes that one has actually came here to meditate and not to discuss one in oneself the blood circulation. But now we have already made karma, negative karma, very mild, nothing to worry about, but it's negative. Because the minute we have the wish to get rid of or the wish to get, which is the reaction to our own feelings, we're making some sort of negative karma. Now, when we realize what we're doing, and obviously we will, because we're sitting quietly and the mind is telling us all these stories about the uh, unpleasant sitting situation, when we realize that, not immediately to move, because that's what we usually do. We react immediately. The minute we have this, the mind says, oh, I don't like this, we move. Not to do that. First, to become aware of the sequence. Touch contact, feeling, naming it, unpleasant feeling, then naming it, naming it pain, and then disliking it. This is extremely important because is this how we live? Everything we do in the world, no matter what it is, and I would like you to check that out yourselves, Sense contact, feeling, perception, and next thing, the reaction to that. And as we notice that, we can then, of course, put a stop to it if we want to. We can take our mind off it and come back to the meditation subject. And anyone is able to do that for a moment. There's nobody that is incapable of doing that. As we do that, we will notice that if we don't pay attention to this feeling, it doesn't exist. Now, this is an enormously important discovery, even though it sounds so simple, which means that in our daily lives we do not have to react to every feeling which arises. And feeling also includes emotion. This, this, in this case I'm talking about sensation, but it's a feeling. If we take our mind of it and put it somewhere else where it's more important we don't have to react to the feeling. So as we get an unpleasant feeling, contact, feeling, perception, mental formation. This is how it works. Watch it. Become aware of it. Let it go. Go back to the meditation subject. See that it's not necessary to react. Then, of course, the unpleasant feeling is screaming saying, I'm not going to be de denied. I'm much stronger than what you are. 
I'm here, pay attention. All right. If you then feel that you can no longer drop the attention on the feeling, move. But move gently, carefully, with the understanding that the unpleasant feeling has won, that it has become stronger than the mind, that the mind was not able to let go of the unpleasant feeling. It's perfectly all right. There's nothing wrong with that. It's much better than sitting with an unpleasant feeling and hating it. That makes much worse karma. But the acceptance and the um, understanding that one is moving because one has been the victim of one's own unpleasant feeling is also important. Because next time, when, for instance, in daily life, somebody says something nasty to one and one reacts, one knows one has become the victim of one's own unpleasant feeling and no longer blames the other person. It's a very important way of getting to know oneself and how we constantly act and react. So this seclusion is also from our sensual desires. And as the meditation progresses and becomes concentrated, we no longer have the difficulty so much with the body and can actually seclude ourselves from the sensual desires, which in the beginning is not possible. So seclusion is twofold and also applies to our daily lives that they should not be of such um, confusion and busyness that our attitude towards ourselves is, um, becomes actually like a stranger. We're no longer really connected, not grounded, because we don't have time for it. It seems to be a very difficult thing, time, and yet it's arbitrary. We have put time into 24 hours, which is um, totally arbitrary. We've done that ourselves. Time is everywhere. And it doesn't have these um, boundaries and uh, these uh, diminishing aspects that we give it. So another aspect that the Buddha wanted from a monk is energy. Now, energy is very important for meditation. When we become sleepy, the meditation is no longer possible. And yet it is a difficulty that specifically at the beginning of a course often happens because a mind is asked to do something so different from what it's used to doing that it refuses and instead falls asleep. Now, sleepiness in meditation is, of course, counterproductive and 
doesn't bring anything at all. In the, uh, there is a rest hour during the day, which I'd really like to urge you to take that rest hour because meditation in the beginning, particularly and particularly at the beginning of a course, it's quite a lot of work. And energy is actually one of the seven factors of enlightenment. An energetic mind, not an energetic body. If we have too much energy, we become restless. That's physical. If we have too little energy, we become sleepy. If we feel in the meditation that sleepiness is entering, open the eyes, look at the light, wherever it may be, move the body in order to um, give it a little extra um, energy, give yourself a pep talk. This is the time to meditate. Now there, is, uh, there are the conditions. Now there are the uh, friends. Now there is a teacher. Let me do it now, whatever is helpful. Anything, any kind of pep talk you can give to yourself. The Buddha also recommended um, pulling one's earlobes and rubbing one's cheeks. So you can see that this kind of difficulty it was not uncommon amongst his monks and nuns. Energy is the partner of concentration. The two have to go together. And this is an... One who has perfect concentration and can teach it. I wish one could. How does one teach perfect concentration? I'm afraid we all have to do that ourselves. But the Buddha gave many pointers and many guidelines, and I will try to give you as many as possible. But I'm afraid everybody has to do it them for themselves. The two belong together energy and concentration because the mind that has energy in it is a mind that can concentrate become one pointed a mind without energy is foggy and hazy it's um, unclear it may feel quite alright because it has this feeling of um, Woosiness, but it doesn't get into meditative states which raise one's consciousness. And that's what meditation is all about. So we need to have both. They go together. And concentration, of course, is the key word for meditation course. So our say something about that so that we can start doing what we came, came here for. To start out with, 
we'll use the breath as our meditation subject. And we can use the breath in several different ways. For those of you who have years of meditation practice and have used the breath at the nostrils, you just continue that same way. If you've only been meditating for a short while, then it is, especially at the beginning of a course, very helpful to use a crutch which later on we can discard. We have four different kinds of crutches. The first one is counting. One on the in-breath, one on the out-breath. Two on the in-breath, two on the out-breath. No more than ten. Back to one. You can also use one on the in-breath, two on the out-breath, three on the in-breath, four on the out-breath. You can be as inventive as you like if it works, but only if it works. Every time the mind wanders off, come back to one. Don't start worrying about whether you were at four or it must have been nine already, back to one, it doesn't matter. Nobody is checking up on it. That's the first crutch, the counting. That's for those people who like numbers. There are people who do like numbers. And if you do, please use that. For those of you who like words, Use a word. If the Buddha means something to you, to you use Buddho. Bud on the in-breath, ho on the out-breath. It's a traditional way of using a word. It means to the Buddha. We are offering our breath and meditation practice to the Buddha. For those of you to whom the Buddha is not um, of such importance, Use the words love and peace. Love on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath. You can imagine that you're breathing in love and breathing out peace. If you like, just one of them. Just one of those words. Don't have to use both. If you don't like them, use your own. Words are words. It doesn't matter. Anything that works is right. It's not... I think I'll say that right now. Watching the breath, no matter how, with whatever crutch or method, is not the meditation. It's a method. And a method is a method by any name. And the sooner we can get rid of the method, the better. But in the beginning, we've got to have a method. Otherwise, we have nothing to hang our mind on. We need a hook. So, first is 
counting second word. If you don't like love and peace, or one of those two, or Buddha, any word you like, it doesn't matter. The third crutch is for those of you who have visual minds. There are many people whose minds are very visual. They, when they think something, immediately a picture appears. Imagine that the breath is a cloud that comes out of the nose and expands as it comes out and contracts and goes back in. Make the cloud a beautiful color, white or gold. Either one of those might be nice. If you don't visualize in technicolor, leave it the way it is. It doesn't matter. In and out watching it. If you don't like a cloud, use an ocean wave. It's just as good. It too works for some people. That's for those of you who are visually inclined. And the fourth one, sensation, physical sensation. As the breath goes in, the wind of the breath touches the nostrils, there is a sensation. As it goes further in, there is a sensation. It can be at the forehead. It can be then at the back of the head, down at the neck or in the throat, into the lungs. Don't look for any of the sensations. Whichever ones become quite noticeable. So as you breathe in, there are different sensations. The lungs expand or the body expands. As you breathe out, there are different sensations. The body contracts again. The breath leaves the body. Watch the sensations. All these are nothing but crutches to keep the mind with the meditation subject. Numbers, words, pictures, sensations. Four crutches. Or... If you are already experienced and have meditated for some time and quite contented with your practice, just watching it as it goes in and out. I've already spoken about the unpleasant feelings which arise, what to do with that, and now the thoughts, which are our worst enemies. As they arise, give them a label. A label such as future, past, wanting, hoping, planning, fear, worry, dislike, or nonsense, which is about true something like 75% of the time, if one is willing to make that statement about oneself. One can also say, not now, later. But that's not helpful. Many people do that, but it's not helpful. Because the naming, the labeling of the thought has a great advantage. First of all, it explains 
to us our habitual thinking pattern. And you will find that you will be using the same label over and over again. The habitual thinking pattern. Secondly, you will notice that you're thinking about the future or the past and not about the present. But we can't watch a future breath, nor can we watch a past breath. We can only watch a present breath. And we cannot live in the future, nor can we live in the past. We can only live in this moment. So when we see that we're in the future or in the past, we will see that we are thinking about life and not living it. And when we do that, we miss the most profound experience to live that can only be done in this one moment. So there we have the possibilities of realizing that, but we have a much greater advantage still. And that is during our daily lives, if we have become used to labeling, we will watch our thought patterns and will label them and we will see when they become unwholesome, unprofitable, and because we have learned in the meditation to change from the thought, which we have labeled, back to the breath, we can do that in daily living. We can change from the unwholesome, unprofitable thought to one that is wholesome and beneficial. From the labeling to the changing, exactly as we do in the meditation practice. If our meditation practice does not help us to live better, we're not meditating right. It's got to help us to live better. To live better naturally, not materially, but to live better in our heart and mind. So the labeling is extremely important so that we can get a, a grip on what's going on in our mind that we're thinking we know already. That's not enough to know that we're thinking. We've got to know what we're thinking. And as soon as we know what we're thinking, we'll be surprised. And that's all right. The more surprised we are at ourselves, the more we learn about ourselves. And it's a, a great adventure it's uh, like a, not only an inner journey, but it's a journey of exploration <coughs> to get to know this one human being. And as we get to know this one human being, the, as much as we know of it, that much we know about the rest of the human beings. We're all in the same boat. We're all in it together. And we're all doing the same things. They only turn out a little differently. You have the meditation method. You have the reaction or non-reaction to the unpleasant feelings that arise in the sitting and the labeling of the thought. As far as the sitting posture is concerned, 
we put our legs that way, which you think you can keep them the best way, and we use them, we do it with the eyes closed. And the hands can be together in the lap or on the knees, either way up or down, it doesn't matter, whichever way you're used to doing it. The only thing that's of importance as far as the body is concerned is the back. The back should be straight up and down, but not military straight. It should be relaxed. It should be relaxed and at ease. The Buddha said, in order to meditate successfully, we need to be comfortable in mind and body. That's why contentment, no wishes, energy in the mind, and a straightforward idea of concentrating the mind without thinking. This business of without thinking is the most difficult thing that human beings can accomplish because we are so used to it. Our minds are constantly thinking. And only when we start meditating do we become aware of the fact that it's useless to think all the time. It's work, it's dukkha, it's irritating, and it brings nothing. There are times when we have to think. When we have to do a job, we have to answer the phone, and we have to write a letter. Those times we have to think. But when we meditate, we have to be able to come to the point of experiencing rather than thinking. And this is the point which is worthwhile remembering. It's the experience of the breath, not thinking the breath. I want to be sure that you're all quite clear on that point. The mind experiences the breath as it goes in and out. The breath is part of the body and the mind experiencing that part of the body action. Every thought, we label it to become aware of what goes on. When we actually learn to stop thinking and learn to experience, and if we haven't done this before, this not thinking, we will have our first experience of a mind that can touch upon our inner being. As long as we think, no way to get in touch. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment.
Now imagine that you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart which opens all its petals until it's fully open. And out of the center of the lotus flower comes a golden stream of light which fills you with warmth and joy from head to toe and surrounds you with love a feeling of well-being. Feel yourself completely filled and embraced by that golden stream of light. brings you only warmth, well-being and love. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to the person nearest you in this hall, filling him or her with warmth, and light and joy and embracing him or her with love and a sense of well-being. Now open your heart wider so that the golden stream of light can reach out to everyone here. 
filling everyone here with the warmth and light that comes from your heart and surrounding everyone with love and a sense of well-being. Think of your parents. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to their hearts, filling them with warmth and joy, surrounding them with love. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. And let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them. Fill them with your love. Surround them with warmth. without expecting the same in return. Think of all your good friends. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them, filling them with warmth and light and joy, embracing them with your love and friendship.
You think of your neighbors at home, people you work with, people you meet in the shops, on the street, those you know, those you don't know. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart enlarge and expand so that it can touch all these people with your warmth and your love. Think of any one person whom you find difficult to love. Anyone with whom you may have had some difficulty. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to that person too so that there's no obstruction in your own heart. Fill him or her with warmth and light. Surround him or her with your love. Think of those people who live in your hometown, whether you know them or not. Let your heart expand so that the golden stream of light brings the warmth and the love from your heart can reach out to all those people going into their houses, into their hearts. Giving them the best. The best gift that you can give.
put your attention back on yourself. Feel the joy that comes from giving, peacefulness that comes from loving. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart fill you completely, surround you, so that you can sit in it at ease and with confidence. Now let the golden stream of light go back inside the lotus flower which closes its petals. Then anchor the lotus flower in your heart so that it may become one with it. May all beings have love in their hearts. <laughs> 